Hey, Roy, what's going on, man? How are we doing? Hey, Chad. Good to see you, buddy. Good. Now, you are out in Chicago? Yep, I'm in Chicago now. Just um, hoping, you know, wishing I was at the ballpark. <laughs> now, you have been, uh, to kind of share with our audience here, uh, you were my personal scout. You were, uh, I want to dive into kind of your scouting career, uh, maybe even remember how and what we did when we met. Um, it's been kind of interesting when I've been scouting myself. I, there's probably two or three scouts that scout in my area that came into my home and shared, shared their information about the club. They did their, their whole spiel. And they're like, well, you remember I came into your house, right? And they're like, I, I, no, not really. <laughs> there were 30 guys. They all kind of blend in together. But the difference between you is you were actually one of the scouts that came to Green Valley, came to Las Vegas, and actually worked me out um, as you guys were trying to make a draft decision. So walk us through maybe your, your scouting career and how you got started and what you got into it. Uh, well, I, I, that, that year was only my second year. I played uh, 15 years as a pitcher. Um, I finished my career pitching AAA with the, um, with the Pirates. And uh, at the end of that year, they asked me if I would, was interested in scouting. And I, you know, I was a little taken aback because I had won 15 games. I had, a, you know, all, close to five years towards my pension of big leagues. Uh, I thought they were going to ask me to come back. But the more I thought about it, you know, I had just turned 32 years old. And, and I said, well, you know, I could turn from an old guy to a young guy overnight. So I, I did the New York, New England area, which is, you know, where I'm from, I'm from New York. And then after that year, they asked me to move out to Arizona to take the area there. So it was the Four Corners and Las Vegas. And I was handed a follow list and you were at the top of it. So, um, you know, I had to drive over there a few times, watch you play. And, uh, you know, the workout you, you're talking about, um, an older scout named Ken Parker uh, was, came in. And um, I knew if I let him have time with you alone, uh, just on their own, if you remember, I, I just threw batting practice and let, let Squeaky, and I knew you would sell yourself. And Kenny fell in love with you, and, um, you know, we wound up drafting. Yeah, that's, for those in the scouting world, that's Ken Squeaky Parker that had been, that had been around for a long time scouting. Um, just an awesome dude. Um, hilarious, but he's like from Mississippi. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, just got that that accent. Just has a lot of energy. Had those uh, lizard skin cowboy boots he always had on, and yep. it was just a cool experience. Um, so yeah, that's your second year now as a scout. It's 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 difficult to to be in the the right position to get a first rounder. Uh, that's kind of you could say the dream of an area scout. Um, so walk us through because there's only so much you know as an area scout going into it. Maybe especially being a young first, second year scout, you don't really know what's going on. So I know you told me in the past, I believe you guys were looking at myself as well as Reggie Taylor. I'm sure there was a lot of other players on the board. What, what do you remember at, at that point? It's tough to remember the other guys that were in consideration because um, a couple of things. One, it was only my second year. And <laughs> I, 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 don't, I don't have the perspective. I didn't have the perspective then that I have now. The other thing is they, they weren't necessarily going to share um, the names with me. You know, more, more than anything, I was focused on you, what I thought you could be. And I think I would probably be, um, I would probably be more detailed now. Not that I, I would have still drafted you or, or wanted to draft you. But um, again, I, I, it was only my second year. More than anything, I wanted to put the people above me in the position to, to be able to make a good assessment. Um, I, I would have been a little more confident now 
and pushing for you. And I have no doubt that, that you know, I would have pushed as hard. But um, the important thing for me is to get to know, was to get to know you, um, provide as much information as I could to the, to the people above me, and, th and then get you in a spot where they could see you. And I think, um, you know, in the end, that workout you had with Squeaky was, was, the, was the finisher, you know. Uh, I, I, I say to this day, I wish I had taped it. I could have sold it as a, um, this is how you work the player out. This is, these are the questions you ask. These are, what, this is, these are the things you ask him to do, you know. Uh, I can remember Squeaky telling you to get on your knees, like on the grass at, at, at shortstop, and throw to first base. And I said, why did he have to do that? Because I want to see how much confidence he has in his arm, you know. And then when I was throwing BP, all the things he asked you to do, like, like hey, uh, hit a run. And then he'd stop you and say, all right, what were you thinking there? What did what, you do different with your hands? What did, you know, he wanted to get a, get a feel for your acumen, you know, how far advanced you were mentally. Yeah, no, and that's, that's, I would definitely say that's a lost art now. Um, there's, there are some workouts that guys still continue to do. Um, it's typically at a, a big league stadium. We have free draft workouts. Um, this is all pre-COVID. Who knows what's going to happen now? Um, but they would get those measurements. You know, you, now you got the track man and all these different gadgets everywhere where they get all these measurements now. Um, there's no time to sit there and just do what you just explained. Um, which is somewhat unfortunate. Um, sometimes I think we miss on, do we really know if this hitter knows what he's doing? Does he have the aptitude to hit? Uh, does he know how to make those adjustments in game? Because um, we're seeing a lot of what I call, and I think scouts call it showcase kids. Right. They can get out, they can do the bat speeds there, the hand speeds there, but then they start talking about hitting and Sometimes they give you the right answer, but you can tell in their approach and how they go about it. Like, I don't know if this kid really knows how to hit. Right. Do you right. see that? Do you see that? Well, I, I'm not. I'm not dealing with as much with the amateur players now, but I do think that because of the technology and because of the overcoaching, I think you know we've kind of, and I see it at the big league level, we've kind of created a generation of robots where you know these kids aren't thinking on their own. You know, uh, I, I see it on the mound all the time where it's difficult for a, um, a pitcher to go from plan A to plan B on the fly. And that's, that's the key to, especially as a starting pitcher. You know, can you pitch around and, and still be successful on your B and C days? And that's, that's when you have to slow the game down. You have to, you know, go back to the rosin bag and say, okay, you know, um, is it a mechanical adjustment? Do I, do I need to change my pattern? You know, there's a lot of things people can't tell you. And just like yourself as a hitter. You know, um, mentally, it's really tough for somebody to get you out of a slump other than to tell them, the, the, you know, that they still believe in you. But you have to fight it out yourself. You know, you have to be mentally strong. Um, you have to, re you know, think back to, you know, hey, this is, this is what got me here. I've been successful before. Um, and, go, and go back to your process, you know. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't know that we haven't lost that a little bit, you know. I agree. Yeah, it's uh, it's just talking to hitters. You kind of see their, I think their they their spit their heads kind of spin a little bit quicker. <laughs> you know, there there's a lot of thoughts going on there, and they're not quite sure how to get out of it because they're they haven't discussed it or talked about it, and maybe even the lack of games too. And and the fact that you know the the technology is starting to come into play when you when you you know when you came on, and when by the time you got to the big leagues, I know. You know, it was you had access to, to stuff that I didn't when I was in the big leagues. 
but you were less reliant on that. So therefore you had to, you, your other senses become more acute. It's like being blind or being deaf. Mm -hmm. You know, your other senses become more acute and stronger because of that. So you had to, you know, develop a mental, a mental picture, a mental feel of how things felt when you, when it was going good. And, and it was easier for you to self-correct because of that, I think, you know, um, and, and that's, again, you, you, you know, this is all great stuff. Um, I, but what I, I'm glad I wasn't, I didn't have to be as reliant on, on, uh, on either analytics or, or film, you know, um, that, because I, I know, given the fact that I was walking the thinnest of lines when I was in the big league, because of my talent level, I had to be able to adjust on the fly. You know, I had to, even if the pitching coach told me, you know, boy, that's not the way to go. You know what? I know me better than I know you. And one thing drilled into my, into my head early on with the Phillies, when I first signed, Dallas Green was the uh, farm director, and he had a lot of veteran old guys. And, and boy, they, they made you tough, you know. And one of the things they drilled into your head is, is you have to have conviction. You have to believe in yourself. The wrong pitch thrown with conviction is better than the right pitch thrown with a doubt in your mind. And they, they would challenge you constantly. If you kind of were wishy-washy with an answer, they would get on you. It wasn't whether you were right or wrong, it's whether you believe it, you know, and that, that, that they, and I, that's true today as, as ever, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, I, I agree. I, we talked about the three Fs before, talking about faith, right? Faith is the belief that you can actually go out and do the job. Um, let's talk about, you, you mentioned that you, you pitched in the big leagues for quite a while uh, for a few different teams. Walk us through your story. You were drafted out of high school, correct? Yeah, I was drafted by the Phillies, fairly high pick. Got, I was in, I was in double A by the time I was 19, actually the same age as you were. And then we got to the big leagues at the same age. Uh, actually, I think you were 21. Yeah. When we got to the big leagues, or just, just short of 22. I was the summer of my, you know, before I was 22 years old. I had pitched me a lot early on, so I kind of lost a little bit of a yard on my fastball. So by the time I got to the big leagues, I was a more finesse pitcher. Um, but uh, the Phillies traded me out of double A to Cleveland, and I got to the big leagues to Cleveland in 1984. And I was up, up and down 84, 85, got traded to the Twins in 86. I was up and down with them 86, 87, 88, and then got full years in the big leagues, 89 and 90. I got let go, hooked on with the ball, Baltimore, and got most of the year in uh, 91. And I finished, finished up in 93 with the Pirates in AAA. And they, you know, God bless him, Cam Bonifay, who was your GM and drafted you, um, offered me a scouting job at the end of the year. I still tease him about, um, you know, not bringing me up. But he was, you know, he, he gave me a whole new career. I owe him a lot. That's awesome. So they, it's, that's a lot of years of baseball in about a minute. So walk us through and kind of share with us, because like me, you had – an up and down career, triple A in the big leagues, kind of back and forth. What was it like for you, say the first time you got sent down from triple A or from the big leagues to triple A, what was that like mentally for you? Well, every time I got, I only got sent down in season once. Um, and that, that hurt. But one thing I, I remember I was with Cleveland and, and I was doing well and I hadn't gotten called up. I think this was maybe 1985. I had been in the big, I had spent half the year in 84. And I remember going to sleep at night thinking, geez, these guys don't like me. What do I have to do? Blah, blah, blah. And then it, and it struck me that the people I was trying to impress in Cleveland weren't facing me the next day. They had nothing to do with how I was going to do that day. And it was almost like a, a light went on. I can't control that. Right. So I'm like, okay, 
you know what, maybe they don't like me, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw a complete game tomorrow, you know, or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do really well, and I'm going to force their hand. I'm not going to think about them, you know, because they're not hitting against me. You know, they're not, uh, you know, they're not getting on base on me. I don't, they don't factor in what, what's happening right in front of me. You know, I took that attitude. So, yeah, there were times when I was down, but, but I liked myself better than I liked anybody else. So I wasn't, I was never going to shortchange myself when I was on the mound. I was very conscious of, you know, look, this can end overnight. I'm, I'm, I'm not that good. I mean, I always, I always did well in AAA because I was always, I always got to the big leagues. But I knew I had to bring my A game all the time, you know. So that, that disappointment wasn't going to affect how I was on the mound. And, and so I'm going to give my credit, self credit for anything. It might be that. Yeah, and, so I loved, you... and I loved it. You know, I, 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 I was single my entire, except for my last year. I, I didn't have other responsibilities. So the only, the only disappointment, you know, it was all on me, you know. Um, I, I didn't have any of those extra burdens, which I, I don't think I would have been able to handle real well if, if that had been the case. Um, so, you know, but once I was between those lines, I, I loved it. You know, I, I really did. And I, and I didn't want the other guy to beat, you know, and, and, and I used to listen to guys make excuses when they got to triple A. I'll, I'll never forget. I was on the bus with, um, in spring training with Brian Harper, who had been up and down a lot. And we were sitting next to each other, and I was reading the, um, the uh, transactions in USA Today. And some guy that had been in the big leagues for a long time had just gotten sent out in spring training by a team. And I was, I was like, wow, boy, I wonder how he's going to take it. And I remember Harp said to me, well, we'll find out how much he loves the game more. That always stuck with me, too. Because yeah. Harp didn't have an easy way up there either. You know, he didn't stick until he was like 26 or 27. And, you know, he had put up great numbers in AAA. And it's like, he didn't have any sympathy for that. No excuses. You love it, you go down and you do good. You know, that's what a competitor does. Absolutely. Yeah, you get sent down. I don't know if it's an innate instinct, but you could say, okay, crap, what did I do wrong? Feel sorry for yourself. Like you said, you didn't, you were single throughout your career. I remember being sent down the first time and I was, I could say, I, I just, I was married. But that first time you got to go tell your wife, like, hey, we got to go back down to Nashville. And she was, she was actually pregnant at the time, too. <laughs> so she, oh, just, you know, all those emotions are going on through your mind. And you're just like, crap, because you want to do it for her as well. And not only for yourself, but for your family. It's interesting. Yeah, I, I, I used to look at the married guys and say, man, I, what a, you know, I, I'm going to get over this soon. I, I'll be with the guys and I'll, I'll you know. And, and all of the negative thoughts that you talked about, of course, I, I would go in the outfield and, you know, just like every other ball player, it's never your fault. You know, it, deep in your heart, deep in your heart, you know it is. But right. for the guys, we used to call playing front office in the outfield. You know, you criticize the GM, you criticize the moves that the manager made and how, you, how, uh, how they didn't give you a good, a fair shake <laughs> and all that stuff. But you know in your heart, it's, that's not the truth. And so when I was in a position, you know, when you were in the minor leagues and I was assistant GM, I think the worst person when I went down to see the AAA team and I would talk to everybody and sometimes the guys would come up to me and say, hey, can I have a minute? And a lot of times it's like, okay, you know, where do I stand and stuff? But when they started giving me excuses, I had no sympathy, you know? It's like, hey, look, I like you, but this is what you did there. There's, you know, in the end, you, you are what your record says you are, you know? And if you have a problem with it, then you pick the wrong business. What they say in The Godfather, this is the business you chose. Right. There's, there's a lot of truth to that. That means you accept the good and the bad. And this is, I tell guys all the time, you know, and you've played with guys like this. They love the good, 
and they hate they they couldn't deal with the bad, but you also have to love the bad too. You have to love that challenge. It doesn't seem that way at the time, but when you're all done, that challenge of bouncing back, that challenge of getting up in the morning, I'm going to be better than I was yesterday. You have to love that part of it too. Deep down, even though it doesn't seem like it, you know. And there's guys that, you know, they love the game as long as things are going good. The thing we all know about baseball is it's it's a game of failure. Yeah, of course, a lot of failure. Yeah, I agree. Like when you feel like you're kind of settling, right? Where you're, maybe you're at a certain spot. You're like, I'm I'm just, I'm good where I am. We've had a couple players on where we, the pressure. You felt so much pressure at the big league level. You play in front of fans, prospects, all this stuff. And then you get sent down. That seems to be relieved a little bit because you you yeah. feel like you can go relax a little bit, and then the, that translation be like, well, I'm having more fun here. It's like, well. That may be true, but this is not where you want to be. We hope not, right? We right. want to be in the big leagues at the highest level playing against the best competition. So we've had some conversations with that before. It's been kind of interesting. So you played – I know you played with, I believe, Burt Blylevin? Yep. When you were with the Twins. Is there anything that you learned from him? Um, well, actually, when I got traded over to Cleveland, he was there. So I think, I think out of the parts, or at least parts of the eight years I was up, I, I played with six of them. Yeah, I, I just total professional, very generous, um, great teammate. He, he was a star, but he was down, down here with everybody else, a practical joker. But the intensity that he brought to every start, you know, that just by example, you know, you, you, and you've been around guys like that, their game faces, it's hard to, hard to explain you know, when guys turn it on, you know it as a teammate. Right. But and as an everyday player, it's a little different. But I'm sure there was a time of day in your in your everybody has their own routine. But there was a time of day. I'm saying around 6:30, 20 to 7, where you started zoning in. You know, mm-hmm. where all the kidding around and all the all the peripheral talk that ends. I got to go out. I got to do my running. Uh, maybe loosen up a little bit. I got to start concentrating on who I'm facing tonight. You know, who can run? You know, when I'm in the outfield, who do I have to be aware of and stuff like that. And there, you can see in the clubhouse how you know things start to calm down and there's yeah. quiet. You know, boy, you didn't want to go near Bird on the day pitch. You know, and that was all the way through. But that's the truth. That's the case with most starting pitchers. You're nervous. You're on edge. You're always worried about you know the worst thing that could happen. Have you have you have you done everything possible to prepare yourself? It, like you know, with pitchers, you're only out there once every five days, and that. Those four days in between after you do, do poorly can be torture, you know, and you, there is a fear of failure, but it's also, you know, that, that fear can really drive you, you know, and I know there wasn't a, ever a time that I didn't get on the mound where I, was, I wasn't nervous. As I got older and I got to, I learned how to deal with that nervousness, I would worry if I wasn't nervous, whereas before I used to say to myself, geez, I wish I was better. I wish I didn't feel this. And then you look forward to it because then you know you're you're, you're focused in. That's part of being focused is those butterflies. And then when you're done playing, that's what you miss. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, miss that, you miss that living on the edge feeling. And the whole time, I wish I would say, geez, I wish I was like so-and-so. He's not, I think everybody that cares is like that, you know, and that's, you can't replicate that feeling, you know? Oh. What did you do in regards to, you said you felt nervous. And I, if you were to t- probably ask any pitcher, they have those feelings of fear of I'm not going to, what if I don't do well, right? They're already those thoughts of the fears in the future, right? They're already concerned about the outcome, what you're trying to do. Right. 
so did you feel like you just kind of leaned into that fear and that into any of you could say an anxiety? I could almost give you a um, kind of an up and down. When I first signed, you know, that confidence you have out of high school. And I think when we experience failure in the minor leagues, I think we all think back to high school and say, boy, I wish I had that mentality in high school. If somebody got a hit off me in high school. That was an accident. That's not going to happen again. Right. Not against me. Oh, just went right out of my mind. Well, now I'm in the minor leagues. When I got to double, probably when I got to double eight, things started evening out on me and stuff. There was one game where I didn't get a, get a, hit, uh, a batter out, you know, started the game and didn't get an out and that played on my mind yeah. you know that played on my mind I can remember getting traded to, the, to Cleveland started the next year in AAA and you know I did really well but I was even more nervous than I'd been before thinking about that game it just played on me. and then one day some of the older coaches and managers I had boy they you know the psychology that they used and they, they knew they knew what made you tick and, and for me that was Doc Edwards he was my first manager in AAA actually I played with him 21 and when I was 31 Okay. I was my first year at AAA, and then my last year I played in Buffalo. He was my manager. I love the guy. Mm-hmm. But one day I'm sitting there, and I had come to the bench, and I tried everything, you know, warming up twice, going right in from the bullpen to, to the mound, because I would, you know, I, I was a slow start. Then I realized that the best thing to do is replicate the, the first inning. Warm up, sit down, get your breath, cool off a little bit, and then, then go out. So anyway, I'm sitting next to Doc. Out of the blue, he just says, hey, Smitty, if I bet you five bucks that you can't get the leadoff hitter out, what would you do? I go, we're on. He says, okay, we're on. All right? I'm on now. Why did he say that to me? All I thought about was that $5. Right. All I thought about was, and you know what? I, I stopped thinking about the second, third, and fourth hitter. I, all I thought about was, like, all right, I might do bad, but I know I'm getting this guy out. You know? It almost relaxed. So now I'm in the big leagues, and obviously I'm not, you know, Comparatively speaking, I'm not as good in, tri- in the big leagues as I was in AAA. And I have to, you know, I face the Ricky Henderson, okay, let's say, which I, I did a lot. Right. And in your mind, leading up to the game, you're thinking, if I walk him, he's not just on second, he's on third. Right. Because that's, that's what he's going to do to me, you know? Right. So mentally, he's already on third base. I'm like, wait a minute. You know, and I took the same mentality. I wrote, you know what? The A's were great at the time. All right. They might beat my brains in, but I'm getting Ricky Henderson out. As I'm warming up, that's what I'm thinking. I know I can get him out. And I, I didn't think about Carney Lansford. I didn't think about Conseco. I didn't think about McGuire. All I thought about was him. So, you know, a couple of times I did get him out. Then the next guy, okay, I'm going to get Carney Lansford out. Now, Conseco and McGuire might take me deep, but I'm getting him out. Right. And I really started focusing on what was, what was in front of me. You know, that was my way of, of, of coping. You know, I, w- I would be nervous all the way up in – to about the middle of my, my warm up, and then I would go back and I'm like, all right, heck with this. You know what? These guys are trying to take food off my table. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it, it's either me or them. And then all of a sudden, I would I'd still have the butterflies, but I, it, would, it, would, it would leave me a little bit. And now that competitive, you almost became angry. You really think, I'm, you, really think you can, you're, you're better than me? You know, which they were, but I had to tell myself they weren't, you know. <laughs> but it becomes, a, you know, that's when your competitive juices start flowing and, and take over your, your, your self doubt. You know, but it, it took me a while to get there. I mean, anybody that tells you now, of course, we, we played with some great players and they, you know, one of the things I think they have all in common is, is a, you know, a, an unbelievable belief in themselves. But 99% of us, if anybody that says they haven't panicked or they haven't gone into a game just unbelievably doubting themselves and then because of that, then beat themselves, they're lying. 
Mm-hmm. We, we've all gone through that. You know, even the best, I mean, talk to Pete Alonzo now, who's off to a bad, you know, a tough start for us. And you know, you know, he's going to be fine. And you can tell him he's going to be fine because you've, you know, you had so many ups and downs and you're looking at this kid's power and saying, hey, you know, what are you worried about? It's, this is a soft. This, but he's got that burden on him. He's, you know, he's a young kid who's supposed to be carrying us and we're off to a little bit of a tough start. So it's not only he's trying to get out of his slump, I'm letting the whole team down, you know. And he's got a – and he's a good kid, and I'm certainly not going to give him advice. But I would say the same thing to him, you know. Forget about, you know, forget about the letting the mats down or anything like that. You think this guy can beat you? I guarantee you'd say, no way, you know. Yeah, I think that helps Pete Alonso, home run champion, uh, dealing now with huge expectations. That's a whole different ballgame uh, at the big league level, especially being in New York. So, yeah, hopefully he gets through that. But that's interesting what Doc Watson did there is it sounds Doc, to me Doc, like he, Doc Edwards. Doc, Doc Edwards, excuse me. Doc Edwards. We had Doc, Doc, Doc Watson was a coach with us, wasn't he? Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't know. I said Watson. <laughs> but, yeah, it sounds like to me he, he got you to focus just on one batter, on one pitch. Like, do that. Stop worrying about Lansford, Canseco, McGuire. Let's just focus on Henderson and yeah. figure, figure out that's how, how do we get him out. So that's right. – that's great advice. That's I like that yeah. game. You probably lost a lot of money there. I, when I came back after I had a one, two, three inning, he's like, "All right, I owe you five. I said, "No, you don't." I said, "I, I owe you a lot more than that." And that was again, that was my little uh, that was my little mental checkpoint after that. You know, um, I, I'm worried. I'm, I'm worried about everything that that hasn't happened yet. The part I can control is the guy I'm facing, and that's somehow or at some point while I'm warming up before the game. That focus started narrowing and narrowing. I stopped thinking about the second inning. I stopped thinking about how deep I was going to get into the game. All I thought about was, all right, I don't know what's going to happen next, but I'm getting you out. Yeah. Love it. That's awesome. That's great advice. So you, you had a, what, had you eight years in the big leagues? Is that roughly right? Parts of, yeah. Parts of eight years. So you played a long time and then you transitioned. You were 32 when you became a scout. A couple years, how many years were you an amateur scout? One year in New York, New York, New England, and two years out of the Four Corners. And then I became the advanced guy in, I think, 97. Um, your draft year was 96? 95. Uh, 95, yeah. 95, yeah. Okay, so I had another year as an area scout, advanced scout, did pro scouting in 98, and then got elevated to uh, assistant GM in 99. Yeah, you zoom through the – I remember each year, like, going, you know, 95 and 96, I'm kind of – Working my way up through the minors, next thing I know, you're like in the front office working as an assistant GM. Now, was that an aspiration of yours going through as a scout? Um, yeah, I wanted to be in the office. I wanted to be, you know, uh, in development or, you know, part of the decision-making process. And like most things, you think it's going to be a little easier than it actually is. You know, I, I know, and I say this to Cam Bonifay, like I said, who I, I owe a lot to, as with most of us, I wish I knew then what I know now. When I, when I would get into meetings and think that the answers were, were black and white. And the fact of the matter is, like most of the life, most of it's gray, you know. Um, and, and you don't realize, and the job has changed. I mean, I did, I did want to be a GM for a long time, but it is, a, it is an all-encompassing job. It's a, it's a bear of a job. You not only uh, are responsible for all of the people in baseball ops, which I think people on the outside are, would be surprised at how many people are actually under the, um, the GM's purview, you know, mm-hmm. development, scouting, international scouting. Actually, the GM, the, GM, uh, the, the groundskeeper 
answers to the uh, to the GM. The medical team answers to the GM. There's so many decisions you have to make. So many people, so many people that are dependent on you, and it's and it's a, it could be a lonely job. And not only you have to do your job, you wake up in the morning and you're getting criticized on the radio and 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 the papers and everything like that, just like as a player, you know. But at least as a player, you you know you can control things a little bit more because it's it's only you you have to worry about. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, it's it, I, like you said, there's 30 teams. There's only 30 GMs, like 30 assistant GMs, special assistants, all these type of positions. Uh, but yeah, that's a that's a, I, there's I think it takes a special, I don't know, a mindset. I probably would say a special mindset to want to be that guy or, or that girl to be a GM at, at that level. And I don't know about you, but I. I don't have the aspirations to do that. <laughs> There's other things I'd rather do, but it's interesting. Like, can you give us an example of, like you said, it was, it's, it was harder than you thought. Can you give us an example of maybe what the day was like as an assistant GM? Well, I can give you an idea what it was like a GM because um, unfortunately Cam got let go in the middle of uh, 2001 and I was the interim GM for about six weeks during the season. And I, I can tell you this, and I can't remember exactly what came up, um, that that was taking my time, but I do remember getting to the office in Pittsburgh and PNC Park, right? And I had to talk to the owner Kevin McClatchy about something, about a trade or something. So I got in real early, about eight o'clock, and I wanted to make sure that I was there before Kevin got there. And I presented my case to him in terms of a, a move I thought we should make. And then I went back to my office and I said, all right, I had made a list of things I had to do, and. I, I turned around on my desk to where my phone was and I started making clone calls. And at some point I said, maybe I would get something to eat about lunchtime. Well, it was 2.30, okay? okay. But then I turned around a couple other things going on and I was like, wow, I haven't talked to Lloyd McClendon who was manager yet. I better get down there. I turned around, it was 6.30. I, I will never ever forget that day, ever. So you forgot to eat. <laughs> I didn't eat, and I usually I usually would go down and check with the GM about you know whatever in case yeah. something came up and stuff. At that point, you know, six thirty on, I I didn't like going to the clubhouse because the players are getting ready, and the manager that's his kind of downtime. You know, after BP's over and stuff, you know, the, he, he's talked to the press, talked to his players and stuff. He's preparing, give him you know, and I will never forget that day. I just in those six weeks, I never felt like I was trying to get to even. Forget about getting ahead of the curve i was trying to get to even i always felt like i was one step behind mm. so it sounds like it's a non-stop it never ends 24-hour job what is it like after a game do you guys all meet together with the manager discuss the game at all yeah sometimes i when i would make the road trips i would always go down and check with the manager about injuries and stuff like that and then i would call the general manager and say everything's fine but generally speaking i didn't like to talk to the manager after a game things are too emotional yeah. You know, I know when I was with the Dodgers for two years, I talked to Tommy Lasorda and he had a great relationship with Al Campanis. He was the GM that hired him and stuff. And he said, Roy, Al never, Al never came in the clubhouse. He goes, every day when I came to the park, I would go into his office at two o'clock. We would discuss whatever we had to discuss. A lot of the stuff that happened the day before. And then I would go down. He goes, that's where the old timers did it. The clubhouse is mine. The office is yours. But I would, I would talk to him every single day. You know, the manager has to has to deal with so much after the game, and especially, you know, just think about, you know, having to make a, a big decision in the ninth inning, whether to bunt or whether maybe a hit and run backfired on you, or you 
you brought the left-hander in and, you know, he gives up a, a home run from the other left-handed batter, even though that was the matchup you wanted. A, you're feeling down. B, you have to pick up your team. And C, you're gonna ha- you're gonna have to you're gonna be second guessed by guys with pens in their hands that never played the games in their life, you know. And I'm not putting down the press, but that's you know th- there's such a frustration. So yeah. I think I think I think it was almost more nerve wracking during the games because you have so much less control of, of of how things come out than you do as a player. So um, yeah, there was I could remember just when when things were going bad, especially with the Pirates, I. The games were nerve-wracking. They were. <laughs> and, but yeah. again, that, but that, that's what you miss. You, 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 in the, the off-season, you say to yourself, why was I so nervous about that, that game in the middle of May? There's 162 of them. But that's, right. that's what makes the game great. And that's what we miss about not going to the ballpark now. You know? Even though maybe the nerves aren't as great, it's the challenge of getting this player right, of making a contribution to the organization, of going through your checklist to make sure you ask the right questions, you get the right angle. You, know, you really miss that. Absolutely. So you are now you are now a pro scout with the Mets. What does that what does a pro scout do and how is that different from the amateur scout? Well, the amateur scout's going to see high school and college players and pretty much preparing for the draft every year and then spending his summers preparing for the for the next draft. Uh, pro scout and again it depends on your relationship with the GM. I know with Sandy Alderson, I was kind of a, a point man on a lot of things and then would come into the um, would come into New York three or four five times a year to take part in meetings, be in, be in the office uh, at the trade deadline. Usually, uh, right now, I, I do the American League. So I'm, um, I would, if things were normal, I, I would be charged with writing a report on every player I see uh, in the American League. But, you know, sometimes I'm called the way to focus on some uh, player that we may have, we may have uh, trade talks about. Uh, I may be asked to go to um, our AAA team to focus on two or three guys that we're thinking about calling up or to give a, an assessment of where the guy is in their career, whether, you know, so-and-so who we acquired as a six-year free agent this year, is, can he help us down the road if we have a bunch of injuries? Usually with, with Sandy Alderson, I would, I would go to Vegas, which is where we were for a few years, and then usually before the end of April, and then I would go to New York and sit down, and he would spend a couple hours just, you know, hey, Look, if this happens, who, who do you think I should go to? If this happens, who do you think I should go to? And then, uh, you know, the trade, the, the trade deadline is, um, is, is exhilarating on this side of it. I mean, that's your, that's your playoff game uh, as a player. You know, I, I, I'll always forget the trade deadline of 2015 when we acquired UN assessment. And that, that literally, that deal got done with five minutes left, left till the deadline. Uh, <laughs> and that, and that, changed, that changed everything. We, you know, he went on an absolute tear. and pretty much carried us to the World Series that year. Uh, at that time, we were, we were a 500 team, and we were playing Washington, who was, uh, who, who was ahead of us. We were, we were two games out. Uh, and that same weekend that we got Cespedes done was the weekend that, oh, now the uh, name, uh, the kid that we had traded to Milwaukee, but the trade fell through, and he wound up hitting a home run the next day against Washington to, um, to win the game for us. Ah. But it was, it was a weekend that I'll never forget in terms of being on this side of it out of uniform. All of the uh, combinations of players, um, you know, who could we trade for, who, who we willing to give up, the, 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 the give and take between the GM and the other GM on, you know, the, the kind of the art of the deal, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, was, it was, it's cool. That's cool. Yeah. So you specified, so amateur scouts, 
We scout high school players, college players, the amateur player. We prepare for the draft. You do the pro side. That's pretty cool in regards to people always ask, well, how do the teams make trades? Like, well, So there's a whole different section of scouts that are pro scouts, meaning they scout the big league player, the minor league player. Now, there's been a long time where me and other amateur scouts, after the draft's over, will be assigned maybe one or two teams. I live in Las Vegas, so a lot of time I would go scout the Las Vegas AAA team. So I was assigned, go watch five games, write a report on every player on that team, and then maybe go do a short season A-ball team. So you, as a pro scout, you're scouting the whole American League. I know other pro scouts, they'll be assigned, say, the whole – the whole East Coast or, or a specific organization, and then they have to go scout, say they're given the Phillies, they got to scout every Philly team all the way down from the big leagues down through the minor leagues. And right. that, that's every team's going to be a little bit different on how they attack that. We, 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 use, we go by organizations, which I think is the best way to go because you, you're able to see the development of the player. It's going to give you a lot more background on the player when it comes time to, you know, whether, you know, when it comes time to maybe of acquiring that player. And then seeing the progression of a player is really, really important. So I, that's, that's what we do. There's a layer below me that, that we, we go three organizations. Now, when I, when I was scouting, scouting you back then, the pro departments weren't as big as they are now. So I actually had, I think my first year, I had four or five minor league teams to do in the Eastern, I think it was in the Eastern League. And in September, I would do the two New York teams when I was living there. Okay. And then when I was out in Arizona, I forget who it was. But it's important that the amateur scout sees pro, not only pro ball, but big league ball, because you have to constantly refresh your mind as to what it is you're looking for. This, this is big league bat. This is uh, big league power. This is what a big league slider looks like. This is what a big league curveball looks like. You know, this, these for me, especially being a pitcher, one of the toughest things for me was, was middle infield play. And you were a shortstop in high school. I, I, I re, uh, refer back to that workout that when we brought Scooty Parker in. I went out to eat with him afterwards, and there was so many things he, they, he asked you to do on, on the field. And I asked why, because I had to learn those positions. You know, As a pitcher, you're so focused just between the mound and the plate. What do big league feet look like? When, you, when you're scouting middle infielders, it's feet. You know? And you have to, you know, look at a, a Lindor, you know, you know, and then you see a kid in a ball and you say, you know, yes or no, you know, this, this is, this is the high standard. This is what I'm looking for, you know, but you have to constantly see it and refresh your mind. That's an important part of it. I don't, I don't know if teams do that as, uh, enough anymore either. I know, I know there's a lot of time. There's a lot more showcases, but one thing about being an area scout is a, you're your own boss. That can be two. And I've told some younger um, scouts that, that have got onto the scouting side just on the pro side, and you and I have talked about it. I know that my, my, the biggest, the most important part of my post-playing career was being an area scout. I learned so much. And what, in, in terms of talent assessment, what seeing young players, young high school and college players teaches you is how to project and how to be patient. So sometimes, and I, you know, I don't want to offend anybody. There's, there's some great scouts out there, and you know, you either sometimes you either have an eye or you don't. But sometimes I look at scouts that I know never had to see amateur players and had to make calls on them and, and assessments. When I'm scouting a ball, are they going to be 
you know, how do they look at the young Latin kid who's only 17 years old and he's away from home for the first time? You know, how did they, how, how are they able to project if you, 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 as a player, you think you remember what the other guys were like, but you really care about yourself. You know, you, you don't have a frame of reference, right. you know, and that, that's the toughest part of the side of it. Um, there's so much more sample size at the big league level. A lot, a lot of what, a lot of what I do is comparison scouting. Would you rather have this guy or that guy? Going to A-ball and projecting on a, on a young Latin, and I, I refer to Latins because they're, they're going to be a little younger because they can sign younger, or, or a raw kid out of high school uh, that's got some power but a lot of swing and miss, or a, a young, lean uh, pitcher who's six foot four and 180 pounds, you know, is, is he going to be able to corral, you know, uh, grow into his mechanics, put on 20 pounds? That's the challenge. That's right. That's the, that's where you make your money on, on on this side of it, but but I've told a lot of guys that are young that maybe get frustrated on the pro side because maybe you have some veteran guys ahead of you that that they're the they're the go to guys and how am I going to get to that point? I'll say hey, ask it and see if there's an opening on the on the on the amateur side because the GM doesn't see those guys. He may go see the first round pick, but after that, that's up to the um the, the amateur staff. And then as a, as a, as an area guy. Every guy you have on your list isn't going to crush that either. Right. And it's up to you to, to push for those, for those um, guys lower on your list. And we both know that, that you know, any kid that's drafted has a chance to get to the big ones. You know? So in a lot of ways, you have a lot, more, a lot more autonomy on that side of it. And it's easier to make your mark because the analytics guys and the, uh, the GM, they're not going to have as much say on some, some of those guys. Yeah, that's, and that's where the, you know, Regular, the regular drafts are 40 rounds. This past year was five rounds. Who knows what next year is going to be, whether it's 10, 20. Certainly going to be lower than 40, most likely. <laughs> so, so we're seeing things start to change. Um, we're seeing more. You said you're at home. The, we're about in the middle of August at, at this recording. You're at home as a big league scout, scouting on TV. So what is that like right now? Not what you want to do. I mean, you can pick up a lot of stuff. The pitching is easier. But assessing a um, – luckily, I've been around a lot, and there aren't that many players I haven't seen at least at some point uh, by the time they get to the big leagues. But assessing defense is almost near impossible because you, you have to see reaction. You have to see reaction to ball off bat. You know, the cameras is not that quick. So, so that makes it difficult. I, I, this is the first summer since I was 17 years old that I haven't out, been out to see a, a base, either playing in a baseball game or, or going out to see a game. Um, and it's really weird. It's, it, your body's telling you that you're supposed to be someplace else, you know. But, hey, look, you know, we've got to the point with the technology and, and our portal with the Mets is as cutting edge as anybody's. When I, when I wake up the next morning after a game, I go, I go to, you know, the clips of the, the day before, segment into each pitch for a hitter or each pitch for a pitcher are going to be there for me. I'm going to, I'm going to double check to make sure I, I have uh, my, my descriptive part of my report is on. You know, I wrote down at the game that night that he, that he had a little bit of a short arm action. Well, you know, I'm going to watch, watch a couple of clips to make see exactly how far he brings his arm back. Whether my description of, of his delivery and maybe some flaws I picked out, you know, I'll, I'll look at some different angles on the camera to make sure I have it right. But I'm glad, I'm glad I wasn't able to rely on that when I first started scouting because um, sometimes, especially on the amateur side, that was the only look you were going to get at that guy. So your, your eye for detail had to be sharper. 
you had to make sure that you covered all your bases. If, if that was the only guy, time you're going to see the guy, because there was no going back to the computer and, and looking at, um, at film and stuff. Right. And you had to, you know, so I'm glad, I'm glad I didn't break in under these conditions. Yeah. So, I mean, you've, you've been around long enough to see these changes, right? The analytics are starting to happen a little bit more. Video is very prevalent. It's certainly the amateur side. We're trying to get as much as we possibly can on these players. And now you're at home in, in Chicago, <laughs> scouting for the Mets, watching on TV, watching with plastic cardboard in the background, fake music going on. Hopefully it's just this year. <laughs> We're praying that it's just this year. I know. Are you seeing trends that you're not liking in this regard to scouting? Yeah, I, I, well, in scouting, yeah, I guess, you know, analytics can be a turnoff a little bit. And I understand them and I use them. But I, I always say that if that's the only prism from which you look at the game or you, which you assess a player, without trying to sound cocky, I will beat you. Because I can apply what you have added to what I already know. You know, that's probably what bothers me the most, that you can assess a player just through that. And, again, the, the access to information that we have now is off the charts. And it's all good stuff. And, it's, and I am not denying the science in any case, in any way, shape, or form. But if you want to build a good team and you want to make the right decision, it's a combination. I didn't – in 40 years in the game, I've, I had to have learned something sitting behind the plate and watching all those games and actually, actually having plays. That – that's not going by the wayside. Mm -hmm. I feel fortunate that I could take all this information that we have and, and use it to supplement what I always already know. You know, the trends I'm seeing in, in Europe, you're a hitter. I think the, you know, this one, I think we're into a one size fits all kind of era here where, you know, the launch angle swing is the way to go. Okay. I, I see, you know, it, it's helped a lot of guys. Balls in the air are better than balls on the ground shifts. Yeah. Especially left-handed hitters, they roll the ball over. Most ground balls are going to be to the right side. I get it. But a launch angle swing isn't going to help Jeff, Jeff McNeil, you know, who uses the entire, you know, I, I, you play with uh, Jason Kendall. I don't think a launch angle swing is going to help Jason. Right. You know? Jason used the entire field. He was a, a great contact hitter with a great eye. You know, um, take that into account. You know, I, 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 and you would have a better knowledge of this. All we hear is the success stories. How many young kids are getting falling by the wayside trying to do something they they're not capable of, with with that, you know? Or yeah. the only way, the only way to go is the four seam riding fastball. <laughs> and when I see launch angle swings, I see hole. Okay, I feel like I I could have exploited it. Now, I didn't throw as hard. I would have had to been my my command would have had to been more precise. But I see hole. Okay, so I understand that. But I'm not going to ask Derek Lowe to throw four seamers. I'm not going to ask Brandon Webb to throw four seamers or, or, or Scott Erickson, you know. Even if they threw a four seam, it would still sink, you know. And you face some good sinker balls. You, you don't let the good sinker, you know. So that's all. Look, I, baseball is, is as an individual sport as there is, especially pitching. One size does not fit all. Absolutely. I agree. I agree. Well, this has been awesome, man. I, I've been wanting to get you on. You're, you're my first pro scout, even assistant GM. Like, we're, we're getting up here in rank. This has been pretty awesome. And it's been, it's been fun. We ran into each other a few times on the road. I was actually in San Francisco for my wife's 40th birthday with a bunch of friends. 
and we were all hanging out in the lobby. All of a sudden, I see you come out of the lobby. You're like, Roy, what's up, man? <laughs> you're going to scout the Giants. So I mean, it was, your wife's 40th birthday. I said, you know, whoever I was with, I said, that's that's the kid. That's the kid I signed out of um, Las Vegas in the first round. It was my first sign. <laughs> uh, and, and then you have to drop 40 bomb. Man, it, it goes quick. It really does. But um, it, it does. the great thing about it is it's, it's, you know, this industry is such a small industry, you know, and um, the friendships that we make, the shared experiences, it's, it really is uh, rewarding. Yeah, no doubt. Well, as we wrap this up, Roy, what would you say with all the experience that you have, say you're, you're going to go talk to a kid back to the amateur days, back to this, that 17, 18 year old that, Scouts are starting to look at him. Maybe he's a draft prospect. Any advice you would have for that type of player? Play. There's no – playing is the most important thing. You know, that, that's, the, that's the best learning experience. Good coaching is, is very, very important. But, you know, you also have to learn how to compete, you know, and beating the other guy is important. I, and, again, if you're involved with more than me, have we lost – the, the focus of beating the other guy with all of the um, showcase type type baseball that's played. When I was before I signed to play, I you know I didn't sign till August. The thought of not playing on the weekends with my buddies, and I grew up in the New York area, and we played mostly in New York City because the leagues in the city it didn't matter where you lived as long as you were of age. The thought of not playing, you know, maybe being a little protective because there's still a chance I was going to go back and sign, which I did. Not you know taking the risk of getting hurt. Mm-hmm never even entered my mind or my father because the thrill of playing and, and the thrill of winning collectively. And we still talk about it today. And I still get a kick out of, you know, uh, the exhilaration of what it felt like, not only, you know, going through a tournament and winning, but doing it with the guys, my buddies, my, my, my non-blood brothers, you know, I played the big leagues and I still talk about that, you know, yeah. and, and, you know, Learning how to play is important, but learning how to compete is, is just as important. And that's how you learn to deal with failure. You know, going out and throwing seven innings and, and giving up two runs, that's great. You know, but it should sting a little bit if you lose two to one. The object still is to, to beat the other guy, you know, and that's, that's I, I don't know if we haven't lost that part of it either, you know. Yeah, I think with the showcase circuit, they're definitely – they're playing so much and then they're playing on these teams that they, they're all friends, you know, which is, that's, that's cool. That's fine. Um, the USA, but back when I played, it was area codes and there's maybe some Goodwill series, maybe some USA stuff. So it's a lot of that's the same, but I think they're just doing it for a longer period of time throughout the year. And so you, you just hope that they have that drive and desire to go out and beat that person. And I- and I get it. I, I, I would be there to perform, you know, and, and if I threw hard and I struck out four or five guys in a row in front of 30 scouts behind the stands, yes, that's, that's the important part. You know, I'm not, that, that's a huge part of it. You're going right. to sign, you're going you're, you're to try to fulfill your dream and everything like that. But, you know, once you get, once you get into pro ball, you know, sometimes that's not enough. Sometimes, sometimes as Tom Kelly said one time, I heard, I heard him talking to the press, Sometimes you have, you know, it's not enough to pitch good. Sometimes you have to beat the other guy. Sometimes yeah. you have to hold the other team to less runs than your team. I mean, to, to less runs than your team scores. You know, going in, you're not going to get a lot of runs. You know, you know, going in, you're facing Burt Weilovin or Mike Pacino. So, 
you know, giving up three runs in seven innings isn't good enough, you right. know, and that's, that's, the, that's the challenge, you know? Yeah. Awesome. Well, this has been great, man. I hope, uh, hopefully we can run into each other. Usually it's Arizona when we, when we catch each other and yeah. we go hit up our, uh, our chilies or whatever, you know, something real classy, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I really, I really enjoyed it. I hope, uh, hope, hope I was able to contribute something. Absolutely. Absolutely. So man, I appreciate you. Best of luck to you um, with the, with the season, with the Mets. Um, hopefully you get Alonzo rolling a little bit here for you guys and, and uh, I certainly want to wish you the best, Roy. I appreciate it. Thank you, Chad. I enjoyed it. Thank you. All right. Thanks, man. Hey, what's up, guys? I want to thank you for listening to today's episode. You know, if you had any experience playing a sport while growing up, or even now, you know, have a kid playing a sport, you know how important the mental game is. You know, there are many that say it's at least 60% of their sport, and some will even say it's as high as about 90%. So if the consensus is it's at least 60% of your game, no matter what sport, what are you or what are your son, you know, your daughter doing to work on the mental game? I want to help you out or your athlete out. As I work with athletes at all different ages, they are all different as far as their engagement in a group setting or in one-on-ones. To help give athletes some options, I wanted to hit on doing mental training on their own time one-on-ones, or even in a group setting. So I wanted to give you some options. My first option is my online course where I created over 40 videos where your athlete can watch, learn, and go through these videos at their own pace. I would think and say that this is great for those athletes that don't want to be a part of a group setting or they have thoughts, you know, they don't want anyone to know that I'm actually working on my mental game. Now, these videos come in a yearly membership where they watch the videos, they have access to me through email during the duration of their membership, and they get a one one-on-one call per year. And this is a membership. It's $199 per year. So more, for more information on that, go to mentaledge.training. The second option is for those that really liked engagement. I've been doing live weekly online calls where I pick a topic to coach on. I engage and ask questions with the athletes on how this applies to them. They take notes in their mental game journal and they work on that particular skill or the topic I give them for that week. Now this option is a membership as well and it's $13.99 a month. I also do get a lot of inquiries about one-on-one coaching as well as team coaching. I do do those as well. So you can email me at chad at mentaledge.coach for more details on that. But if you want more information on the links on these memberships that I have, click on the show notes and I can give you all that information there on those websites. But I want to thank you again for listening to this podcast. I do want to make this better. I would love to hear any comments, any suggestions you have where I can make this podcast even better for you and to help you out. I also want to let you know that all of these interviews in, on this podcast are also in video form on YouTube. And if you go search Mental Edge Training Coach, all these interviews will be there as well. So again, thank you for listening, and I will see you in the next episode. Take care.